Make your plans now to join us for the G3 National Conference, September 30th through October 2nd, as we'll gather for Christian fellowship and the worship of God through song and the preached word. Our theme for the 2021 conference will be centered on biblical Christology. You can find registration details at g3men.org. Get 15% off by mentioning code G3JT. That's G3JT. Hey, just thinking listeners, this episode is sponsored by Steadfast Bibles and their lineup of premium cowhide and goatskin NASBs. These Bibles make the perfect gift to show appreciation to your pastor. And this month is the month to say thank you for all that they do. Steadfast has seven different classic NASB layouts to choose from, including their iconic Preacher's Bible designed by John MacArthur. And all are currently $20 off. Today, I am holding one of their brand new Cowhide Editions, uh, handy size preacher's Bible. It is absolutely stunning. We were joking that that uh, that NASB, the B ought to stand for butter, and that's the truth when you when you grab one of these Bibles. Go to our website, justthinking.me forward slash steadfast, and register for a chance to win this Bible. Be sure to share this podcast with your pastor so that he can have a chance to win too. The link to Steadfast online shop is there as well. And for the next two weeks, use the code JUSTTHINKING to get a free priority mail shipping on any of the orders of $40 or over. So again, you use the the, the code JUSTTHINKING to get free priority mail shipping on any order over 40 bucks. We hope that helps you and uh, look forward to you having one of these Bibles in your hand real soon. Welcome to the Just Thinking Podcast with hosts Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker, bringing you cultural apologetics as well as social issues from a biblical worldview. This is the Just Thinking Podcast. Let's think. All right, we are back. It's another edition of the Just Thinking Podcast. I am Virgil Walker. And I am Daryl Harrison. What's going on? Oh my. My brother, can you What's believe going that? On, player? I, I'm excited, man. This is going to be an incredible, incredible night, man. Looking forward to what we've got brewing, man. I can't, be- I can't believe it, man. We're we're actually here. We're live. Uh, this is a live live stream on a number of different platforms, man. We we're trying to make it happen. How you feeling, man? Yeah, man. I'm making my video debut. Tonight with this uh, Facebook live event, YouTube live stream event, my video debut. How do you so, feel about I that? Say hello, hello to everybody watching and and and, and tuning in with us, man. Thanks for making the time for us. And uh, I'm feeling good, man. We're just gonna do what we do. You know, it's, it's, it's like I, I gave people a heads up on social today. I said, listen, if you're planning on joining us, just you know, remember this is just gonna be a regular, right. full, you know, full throttle, official, legit podcast episode for us right so right, right. this is we're, we're gonna do what we do the only thing right. different is the medium right so we're doing yeah. we're doing video yeah they get they get a chance to see how we cook it up in the kitchen a little bit man yeah a little bit man they they, they, they get they don't get to see all the ingredients but they get to see kind of the, 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 the final product a little bit you know <laughs> right, right, right. Show up. 
We can't show them all the ingredients. We can't show we can't show them everything, but they get a, they get a little they get a little bird's eye view at at a little bit of a little bit of something, something man. I'm excited to see how many folks are jumping in on the different media platforms that we have. We're on YouTube. Uh, just thinking on on the YouTube channel. Tell a friend. Tell somebody. Drop this on your page uh, as a as a as a live event that you're watching, and uh, definitely make sure that that uh, your your friends know, family know, pastors know, you know, nephews, nieces, uncles. Make sure everybody knows what's going on and uh, and jump yeah, put in. A, put put the laptop in the middle of the dinner table. Right. Put, <laughs> drop the tablet. Drop the tablet right in the middle of the dinner table. And you guys can tune in. Was hey, let, bring us along for dinner. Whatever you're having for dinner, just make it part of your meal. Absolutely, absolutely, man. Well, I'm excited to be here with you, man. I'm excited that we're that we're doing this. Uh, we we might we might even we might even have a special guest, man. That the, the Hammond B three might even join us here in a little bit. Wait, do you mean the mascot might join us? The mascot, the mascot what? might be, might 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 make an appearance tonight. You know what I mean? Man, that would be crazy, man. That would be crazy. Well, Virg, I know this is your space, man. You do video all the time. This is I, my I, first time. So yeah, it's my I, first I, foray into video. Man, but you're, you're a pro. You're a natural, man. You are a natural. You got, look, look, wait a minute. We, we got, we got, I got the, I got the black shirt with yeah, the got, white logo. Got the you white got, working. I got the white working. White shirt with the black logo. So, and the black, see, I, I, I should have put something on my crown. That's what I should have done. That's all right, bro. You good? You good? Good, good. Well, yeah, I enjoy this medium. Enjoy jumping into this. We got a lot of ground to cover, man. A lot. I, I, quite a few folks have jumped in, and so we're gonna we're gonna get started, man. Well, there's there's over two hundred people watching us live right now, Daryl. Just FYI, Thanks, bro. Uh, on the on the different mm-hmm. mediums, I'll keep you posted on how that how that rolls here in a bit. But I wanted to uh, just kind of start out by saying, man, we, we, we've got a lot of different places and spaces where we're going to be. I know you had a little bit of a shout out to kind of kind of share at the, at the top that you want to let people know about. What was that, man? Yeah. So so just to kick us off, you know, Verge, you and I talk a lot offline about the uh, our own personal dissatisfaction with the absence, the dearth, you know, the, the gap, the void of solid. Biblically solid, theologically solid Christian content out there for women. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we talked about that a lot offline, and that's really a sad state of affairs. There, there's there's just aren't a lot of solid biblical theological content out there for women. But I would I do want to point our uh, women who are watching with us right now to a podcast that's hosted by one of my teammates at Grace to You. Her name is Christy Rose, mm-hmm. and Christy hosts a podcast titled smiling at the future smiling at the future. And, uh, that you, you may you know, be familiar with that, with the words, because the, the words of, of those words come from a verse in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 25, uh, which reads strength and dignity are her clothing. And she smiles at the future. That's Proverbs 31, 25. Well, Christy Rose's podcast is modeled after that verse, uh, which is why she titled it smiling at the future. And the podcast is, is is aimed at Christian single women to explore practical topics like and, and, and habits that single women should be developing, such as living with roommates, caring for aging parents, and navigating long distance relationships. So I wish I want to just encourage our female uh, watchers, our listeners to the podcast, to go out and check out Smiling at the Future 
uh, podcast hosted by Christy Rose. She's on Spotify. She's on Anchor. Wherever you want to uh, uh, download and listen to your favorite podcast, go check out Christy Rose's podcast. Again, it's titled Smiling at the Future. Mm-hmm. That sounds great, man. Listen, I just wanted to mention, because you and I have been traveling around. We went to Tampa at the, um, oh, what was that? The Sovereign Nations Conference, mm-hmm. uh, the Great mm-hmm. Awakening. By the way, the videos are coming out uh, here pretty soon. Um, in fact, they just started dropping, man. Those have right. been really, really good. Um, and you can go on YouTube and check out Sovereign Nations um, and uh, and check out what they've got going on, man. It's a lot of great stuff. I think I, I listened to Tom Askell preach today. I listened to um, God, uh, uh, James. <clears throat> What's James? James Lindsay. James Lindsay. Dr. James Lindsay. He did a great job as well. But the Founders has a conference coming up January 21st through the 23rd, National Founders Conference. You need to get registered. Uh, speakers include Tom Askell, Jared Longshore, Vody Bacham, uh, Chad Vegas, James Dolezal, uh, and then yours truly, both Daryl Harrison and I will be there uh, on, on January 21st through the 23rd. You'll want to go to founders.org forward slash 2021 conference. Again, founders.org forward slash 2021 conference and uh, and get signed up. From what I hear, they they had to change venues right. uh, because of the fact that there were so many uh, people that were that were there and, 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 and filled up the last venue. So they found a new venue and um, man, they're, they're excited. So I definitely want to encourage people to get registered. We'll be there for that. So we definitely want to want to see uh, the, you know everybody there for that. I think it'd be an awesome, awesome time uh, as well. So just wanted to, wanted to mention those two things, man. Excited about the folks that are piling in here, man. We got close to 250 folks that are that are joining us awesome. live in this live event, man. So that's that's exciting as well. And so anyway, with that said, man, I want to I want to tee it up with with you. Uh, because we again, we've been traveling. We did Tampa. We went to Bozier City, um, uh, Louisiana. Uh, first yep. Bozier, um, man. Uh, the, the pa- Pastor Brad Jeezy. Brad uh, Jeezy, yep. <laughs> Pastor Brad Jerkovich. We call him Brad Jeezy because he's, so cool. he's so fly with his attire, man. It's he's crazy. so cool, man. We had a great time with him, and and just just really a good time with the people at First Bozier, man, and and uh, enjoyed our time with them. And from there, we kind of we've come back. We've been on a number of different podcasts since then. I mean, I feel like we've been all over the place, man. It's been a it's been great. I know that as we get closer and closer to uh, uh, November third, man, you you had approached me a while back about this particular uh, episode and what we wanted to do, and we've kind of we've kind of tried to make this thing happen a couple of times, two or three times to make this work. Yeah. But uh, but but we're here now with this live event. I'm excited about it. I know you are as well. <laughs> And I, let me toss it to you, man, so you can get us kicked off for tonight. Yeah. So I just want to thank again everyone who's joining us for this live stream. We really appreciate you guys making the time. You know, and, and Omaha, as you alluded to just a second ago, as we record this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast, is Wednesday, October 28, 2020. And here we are uh, in the United States anyway. We're in the United States are in the midst of another major election cycle in that in only a few days from now, right? Mm-hmm. Tens of millions of Americans, many of whom are professing Christians, will cast their vote for various candidates running for political offices, ranging from those at the highest levels of the federal government, such as president and vice president, to those at the state and local levels, such as governor, school board, and municipal court officials. And as is the case with every major election cycle, there is every indication that this year's election will be no exception in that there are issues 
and individuals, okay, that point to this election being a very contentious, a, a very divisive, mm-hmm. and a very alienating affair, even to the extent that some relationships, even within the church, are being fractured and in certain instances torn apart altogether because of differences about this election. Yeah. Uh, but as followers of Jesus Christ, one might think that politics would, in fact, have that kind of divisive effect and impact on relationships that are built on the ever-shifting and unstable foundations of the world. Yeah. But not on relationships that supposedly, right, are founded upon the firm and eternal principles and precepts of the Word of God. Now, I say that in light of what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. And listen to... The, the 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 terms the words of vernacular here that just point to how uh, how how unifying the body of Christ is supposed to be in Christ, Ephesians two verses nineteen through twenty one. Paul writes this: So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, yeah. and are of God's household, having been built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. So Paul's talking about here about how believers in Christ are one. We're we're unified. We're we're fitted together. We're built together in Christ with Christ as the the, the cornerstone. But be that as it may, you know, even those of us who claim the name of Jesus Christ aren't immune not only to be susceptible to, but even succumbing to the trappings, the temptations and the enticements of this passing world. And politics can definitely be one of those temptations that we succumb to that at least has the potential to strain, if not outright destroy the relationships we have built with others who are within the body of Christ. Now, it shouldn't be that way, of course, but often it is. And it happens largely because the affections of our hearts are so often misplaced. The affections of our heart are so often misplaced. Now, I say that in the context of the following two passages of Scripture in the New Testament. First of all, I'm going to go to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, where we read, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So it was 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. There's also Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes this to the church at Colossae. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Keep seeking them, all right? The presumption is that you're already seeking them. Paul says, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, that's fix your mind. Discipline your mind. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So we allow the affections of our hearts to be misplaced, which is to say, when we allow our hearts and minds to become so enamored with the attractions of the world, including politics, right. that we are drawn away from what the Apostle Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, as those things that are of 
quote, first importance of quote, unquote, when we allow our hearts and minds to be, be so enamored with the world, our relationship with God and with one another suffers greatly as a result because we've forgotten those things that are of first importance. As the 19th century Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who I will quote again later in this episode, said in his sermon titled Charity and Purity, Spurgeon cautions us in this sermon, which he preached back on May 23rd, 1889. This is from Charles Spurgeon's sermon titled Charity and Purity, originally preached on May 23rd, 1889. Quote, even in the pursuit of really good matters of policy, do you know any Christian man who goes into politics who is the better for it? If I find such a man, I will have him stuffed if I can, for I have never seen such a specimen yet. I will not say do not attend to politics, but I do say do not let politics stain you, yeah. unquote. Mm-hmm. So Spurgeon is saying, he's not saying don't, don't get involved in politics. He's not saying that. He's not saying do not get in po- involved in politics or not care about politics. What he is saying is that as you do that, don't let politics stain you. Right. Don't let politics spot you, okay? Right. Now, having said that, I realize that politics is somewhat of a necessary evil in society. And I say evil because every politician is a sinner. I mean, regardless of the political office that an individual aspires or desires to hold or the political party to which he or she may, may or may not be affiliated, that individual is a sinner before he or she is elected to office. They will be a sinner while they're in office and they will remain a sinner long after they leave office. Right. Okay. Now I say that against the backdrop of the following passages of scripture. Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Then there's Psalm chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become. Together, they have been even one. So, yes, even politicians are sinners. Right. And yet that universal reality, and I want those who are watching us to to hear me clearly on this. The universal reality that that everyone's a sinner, including politicians, neither negates nor nullifies our responsibility as Christians to remain faithful to God. Right. Particularly as it relates to the proper stewardship of our civic responsibilities especially as those responsibilities have to do with our involvement in the political and electoral processes that place those sinful individuals in positions of authority over us. Okay, so the fact that politicians are sinners, that doesn't negate. It doesn't nullify our responsibility to be good stewards of the political and electoral processes that we have available to us that place those sinful individuals into those positions of authority over us. But before I go any further on that, Omaha, is there anything you want to add uh, man, to anything that I said to this point? Well, two things, man, that, that you've walked through at this point. One is uh, the fact that all of us are sinful, right? All of it, including politicians. Often I think we have the tendency to believe that, that politicians, uh, and, and again, no one's going to say a politician is not sinful, right? No one's going to say that. But I think the way we respond and act as if they should be sinless, number one, 
mm-hmm. number one. And two, I think the thought process oftentimes is we look at politicians almost as saviors. Right. Uh, they're they're going to save the day. I mean, mm-hmm. you listen to the debates and, and more times than not, they're going to fix this. They're going to fix that. I mean, every aspect of your life, they're going to fix and make better. Uh, and so as a result of the nature of their claims, um, we have a tendency to, to, to get behind a particular candidate and believe that they are somehow going to be the one that's more able to save than not. Uh, I, I think the other, the other thing that you bring up, which has to do with the issue of us thinking about politics uh, in ways that we shouldn't, right, that, and that it becomes an idol. I, I share with you before that as I think about this, I remember when I did uh, I did radio. Uh, and I was on a, I was on an urban radio station and, and, and I know you, you know this, but for those who are listening, if you hear someone ever say they're part of urban radio, that that's kind of code for, for a black radio station. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was kind of a black owned radio station and they were, they were involved in, uh, a, a, a talk show. They did a talk show pretty, it was an everyday talk show. It was a daily talk show <clears throat> at a particular time. Uh, that, and I would be driving around in my car and I would call in on this radio station. I was the, I was at the time the lone kind of black conservative. And, uh, and, and so there was this urban station, very secular in their, in their worldview, um, very kind of prototypical liberal leaning uh, black urban audience and uh, left leaning black urban audience. And I'd call in and, and the, the phone lines would like after I'd hang up. Daryl, the phone lines would light up. And the only mm-hmm. reason I knew this was because like after about week three, I would call at a specific time. I mean, they called me everything but a child of God after I got done saying whatever I was saying. And uh, as a result of that, what I found myself doing is uh, representing a particular a particular view. Now, here's what I did. The radio station guy said, hey, listen, after you get done, stay on the station, you know, stay, stay on the phone line after you make your comments. And they called me and asked me if I could be a, a regular on the show because they were looking at their, at their data or whatever and found out that after I called the, the, the needle, so to speak, would spike. They, a, lot of, a lot of folks would be listening. But what I found myself doing over the course of time uh, during that process was I began defending conservative points of view Right. I, I then began began defending Republicans in office. And so I no longer represented. I was I was more concerned about representing conservatives than I was representing Christ. Mm-hmm. I was more concerned about representing Republicans than I was concerned about representing righteousness. Mm-hmm. Again, there, there, there's small nuances mm-hmm. in the mind of some. And, and at other times, there are large nuances. There, 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 there are large factors that should cause you to say, one is righteous. One is Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm defending Republicanism and right. not righteousness. And so mm-hmm. I, I had to realize that, man, I was absolutely sinning. Right. By yep. by representing a cause that this that, that politics in and of themselves had become an idol. And that I, and, and it was an idol that I needed to to abandon until I until I, I had a great hold on a, a proper biblical worldview. The other thing that I'll say is this in first Samuel eight. Uh, 44, four through 22, rather. First Samuel 8, 4 through 22. I think there's a great warning uh, that we're given about the role of politics. This is the people of Israel. They are, they're asking Samuel for a king and they desire a king so that they can look like the rest of the nations around them. Uh, it says this uh, in First Samuel 8, verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you're old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us 
uh, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to what the people are saying to you. It's not you that they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. And so I, I won't read all of that to you, but but at the end of the day, God just tells them, listen, if this is what they want, if they if they want outside of, yeah. the, of the theocratic rule of God, right, the theocracy of God, the, and they want to they want to be a, a, a God unto themselves and, and and identify a particular political figure, a king to lead them, then 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 let that be. Mm-hmm. So what happens in verse 10, Samuel tells the words to the people of the Lord, and he says to them, here's what the king will do. He said, this king, this is what the king will do who will reign over you. Verse 11, uh, he, will, he, will, he will claim you as his, as his right. He will take your sons and make them serve you with his chariots and horses. They, they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, others to the, and others to the plow to reap his harvest. Still others he will make weapons of war and of equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards, your olive groves. He will give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your, of your vintage uh, to give to his officials and his attendants, your male f- and female servants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will make of his own use. So he, he tells them, look, look, the king is going to take from you and, and give it to himself and give to, to whom he, he desires. Or what did the people desire? They desired to be so separate from God. They wanted to be so far away from God's rule, that they they continue to tell Samuel, we don't care what he will do. Give us this king. And, and, mm-hmm. and that, sadly, what we witness in this text is similar to what we find many Christians doing today. The people of Israel rejected God's rule for representative rule that allowed them to be separate or have less responsibility, less direct responsibility to God. They sought king as savior rather than God as Lord and king. And, 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 and then we, what we find oftentimes is the default or, or, or maybe not the default, but, but perhaps the, 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 the problem, I think the folly often with Christendom is that we get, we get caught into the same trap of, of wanting a politician who we believe to serve as king rather than, rather than God as, as, as Lord and king. So that, that, that's my commentary. I know it's long-winded on that part, but uh, just some, some thoughts that pressed my mind as we kind of jump into it. Yeah, as I listened to you sort of exposit that in First uh, First Samuel eight Omaha, I, I, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you can file that one under. Be careful what you ask God for. <laughs> yeah, right? be careful what you ask God for. A good guy, you might mess around and get what you want. Yeah, you just might get it. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and then not want what you got. Absolutely. Even though you asked for it. Absolutely. All right. You you know you know Omaha. One of our primary goals in this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast is to put to our listeners the argument that for Christians anyway, elections are actually less about issues and are more about worldviews. Less about issues and more about worldviews. Regardless of the issue or issues that happen to be of concern to us, whether it be abortion, taxes, uh, school choice, immigration, foreign policy, or whatever, the stances and positions that you and I take on those issues are a byproduct of our worldview. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, the, the question becomes, right, what exactly do I mean by the term worldview? Mm-hmm. Well, consider how Dr. Jeff Perswell, Dr. Perswell's Dean of Sovereign Grace Pastors College in Louisville, Kentucky, consider how he defines the term worldview in the book by C.J. Mm-hmm. Haney titled Worldliness, subtitled Resisting the Seduction of a Foreign World. Mm-hmm. This is Dr. Jeff Perswell defining worldview from the book, Worldliness, Resisting the Seduction of a Falling World. Dr. Perswell says this, quote, 
Before we examine how we're to relate to the world, we must understand it. We need a biblical worldview, a framework for understanding our human existence and environment that accords with reality. Whether we're aware of it or not, each of us has a set of beliefs and assumptions about ourselves and about the world we inhabit. Through the lens of these beliefs and assumptions, our worldview, we interpret our experiences, draw conclusions, and make decisions. Ultimately, our worldview determines how we live. That's why it's critical that these beliefs align with Scripture. For only there, only in Scripture, do we find God's take on our lives, on this world, indeed on reality itself. The Bible sets forth the contours of our existence, answering fundamental questions about our identity, our environment, our relationships, and our very purpose in life, unquote. That was Dr. Jeff Perswell defining the term worldview in the book Worldliness, Resisting the Seduction of a, Fall, a Fallen World. Now, along the same lines of thought as Dr. Jeff Perswell, theologian Dr. Wayne Grudem, Wayne Grudem in his book, Politics According to the Bible, said this, quote, I believe that every Christian citizen who lives in a democracy has the very least, at the very least, a minimal obligation to be well-informed and to vote for candidates and policies that are most consistent with biblical principles. The opportunity to help select the kind of government we will have is a stewardship that God entrusts to citizens in a democracy, a stewardship that we should not neglect or fail to appreciate. That at least means that Christians are responsible to learn enough about the important issues to be able to vote intelligently, unquote. Okay, that was Wayne Gruden from his book, Politics According to the Bible. Now, along those same, line, same lines, rather, in his sermon titled The Candle, all right, sermon titled The Candle, which he preached on April 24th, 1881, the 19th century British preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, quote, I long for the day when the precepts of the Christian religion shall be the rule among all classes of men in all transactions. I often hear it said, quote, do not bring religion into politics, unquote. This is precisely where it ought to be brought and set there in the face of all men as on a candlestick. I would have the cabinet and the members of parliament do the work of the nation as before the Lord. And I would have the nation, either in making war or peace, consider the matter by the light of righteousness, unquote. That was Charles Haddon Spurgeon from his sermon, The Candle, from back in April of 1881. Now, taking all together, right, taking all together those words from Perswell, Grudem, and Spurgeon kind of summarize why we titled this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast the way we did, Omaha. We titled it The Doctrine of Elections out of a desire to challenge believers in Christ to not leave their biblical doctrine at the door when they go out to vote in November. And as Spurgeon said in the quote I just read, to consider the issues confronting them by the light of righteousness. Consider those issues that you're dealing with in this election by the light of righteousness. Okay. But I love that. Yeah. I I see it. So I'm going to park right there. I'm going to park on Spurgeon's words there by the light of righteousness, pretty much for the rest of this episode. And when Spurgeon says that, right, that we should look at the issues facing us by the light of righteousness, that begs the question, what does the light of righteousness mean? of which Spurgeon is speaking of, look like? What does that light of righteousness look like? Where is that kind of righteousness to be found 
so that as followers of Christ, we can apply it to our political and electoral decisions in a practical way. Well, it's found by both definition and example in God and in his word. Now, we know this from such texts as Psalm chapter 12, verse 6. Psalm 12, 6 says, the words of the Lord are pure words. All right. The words of politicians aren't pure. Okay. I don't care who the politician is. Right. But the words of the Lord are pure words. Right. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. That was Psalm 12, verse 6. Then there's Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Now we're talking about trying, how, how do we identify? How do we discern? How are we to, to, to view the issues that we're dealing with in this upcoming election through the light of righteousness that Spurgeon said? So, but in Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5, it says, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. John chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Then there's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in what? Training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And then there's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So scripture is clear, right? Scripture is very clear that if we truly desire to know what the righteousness of God is, and how to apply his righteousness in the decisions we make in every, every area of our life so that those decisions impact and influence, have impact and influence in the world around us in a godly way, we must go to God and to his word and not rely on our own subjective and fallible reasoning as it relates to how we're to view this fallen world and how we're to function and operate in it. Any, any thoughts on that, Omaha? A lot, lot of thoughts, man, that, that I wanted to share with regard to that. I, I, I love the fact that we always, on, on the Just Thinking podcast, we always define our terms. And, and fortunately, that's not unique with us. Right. Unfortunately, we don't get that in other spaces and places. Oftentimes, it's, it's difficult for, for folks to you know, actually identify what they mean by what they say. And we, we, never, we never do that. I think about about what you shared in, in, in for, for two in, from, from a standpoint of two different ideas. Uh, you talked about a defining of worldview and what that is. And, and I, I love what you said, what, what Spurgeon said. He talked about the light, examining what we do in, in the light of, of righteousness. Mm-hmm. And uh, you kind of defined uh, worldview for us. I, I want to go to a couple of things because as I kind of un- unpacked this, I, I wanted to look at worldview against the backdrop of what's happening with us in church culture 
or with, with those of us who, who claim to be believers and compare that to what we're seeing in, in the secular culture. Uh, because what's happening in secular culture is actually having a greater impact, unfortunately, in evangelicalism. Secular culture has so embraced cultural Marxism. Mm-hmm. That they have absolutely fallen prey to historic revisionism. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I want to say that again, because I, I, I we've posted this up. I, I've seen the, the team has grabbed it for us as a quote. And I want to kind of break down what I mean by that. Secular culture has so embraced cultural Marxism. Right. This 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 idea of the the haves and the have nots, the the oppressed and the oppressor. Right. Mm-hmm. These categories of of people and, and, and power structures that are at war with each other, that we have fallen prey to historic revisionism. So now mm-hmm. when we look at the past. We only see it in light of these two different classes, the oppressed right. and the oppressors. Uh, the, the, the working class and, and, and the proletariat. We see it in those in that way rather than for what it really is. What it really is, is sinful human beings doing what sinful human beings do throughout the course of human history. That's what's yep. really going on yep. with, 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 with light along the way, with, with the light and, and sovereignty of God's providential hand throughout the process, right? Mm-hmm. Using sinful men for his, for his means and for his goodwill and his good purpose. Nothing could be clearer about this revisionism, this historic revisionism, than the New York Times Magazine's 1619 Project, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Who, by their own admission, uh, they're attempting to, quote, reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of Black Americans at the center of our national narrative. Mm -hmm. So you've got to ask yourself the question, if they're reframing the country's history, that's a problem. Uh, and, and they're doing it in light of slavery and the contributions of blacks and placing that at the center of the narrative. Well, perhaps that's not at the center of the narrative. Perhaps God's divine plan is at the center of the narrative. And that's Man, what come on, bro. Come on, come on. At the end of the day, God is the one in control. He he he's he's the one, he's the one stirring things up. Anyway. Let me keep going before before I had to call that ham and be up in. Hey, bro, I, I, I was about to I was about to queue up the queue up the mascot there for a second, bro. So I so here's here's what I want to share. Here's here's some of the the commentary that I wrote down. Understanding the worldview of the American founders is also critical in addressing the errors to projects like these. So as, while, while we look at worldview from a biblical standpoint. You and I often get questions from folks who are Christian who are dealing with with their you know their 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 student, their their the person that that's come home from college and has been given a bunch of this garbage, right? In light of that, I thought let's look at the worldview that undergirded the, the founding fathers. The idea that America was founded on the basis of slavery is is absolutely incorrect. And while the sin of slavery was part of our history, the ideology or worldview that was possessed by many in America is actually what led to the abolition of slavery. Mm-hmm. Right? Amen, bro. Yep, exactly so, right. What led to the abolition of slavery was the worldview held by the founders. While they didn't mm-hmm. behave rightly always, they held on to a worldview, an ideology that said that men are created in the image of God. And they knew that by what they were doing, they were sinning. And as a result of that, you would have abolitionists who would come later and say, hey, we've got to live out the call of this Christian worldview that we claim to hold dear. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Speaking of the, of, the, uh, of the worldview of the founders, it was Patrick Henry who was the first governor of Virginia. He was a founding father. He was the one who famously said, give me liberty or give me death. Mm-hmm. Well, responding to, to the worldview of our nation's founding, he also said this, quote, it cannot be emphasized too often or too strongly 
that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, Mm -hmm. not on religion, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ, end quote. Mm. What we have there in in his response is the fact that he knew uh, that, that while we didn't always live out the full measure of the ideals that we claimed to hold dear, we still held them dear. And that was the impact, the emphasis, the impetus, if you will, that led to the greatness of, of what is of what is America. You know, Omaha, I'm not sure. and I don't want to assume that uh, most of the folks who are watching this right now are familiar with the 1619 Project. Right. But the reason it's called the 1619 Project is because 1619 uh, is the year that the first African slave was brought aboard, uh, uh, onto the shores. Of, uh, well, America wasn't a nation at the time, obviously. America didn't become, become a nation until 1776. But when, when you look at uh, uh, stepping foot on the shores on, on American soil, we'll put it that way, was the year 1619 in Jamestown, Virginia. Right. But I would just say to anyone who's associated with the 1619 Project that if they really want to have an intellectually honest conversation about slavery, then they should have named, named the project the 1618 Project. Right. Now, why do I say that? Well, they should have named it the 1618 Project because there was slavery going on long before 1619. Good. And whoever that slave was, whoever that black African slave was, who was the first to step foot off the slave ship onto ground in Jamestown, Virginia, that wouldn't have been possible were it not for other black Africans who sold black Africans to the Europeans so that they could ship them on those slave ships to to, to be uh, uh, deported onto American soil. Right. So if you want to really be having an intellectually honest conversation about slavery, let's rename it 1618 Project because we need to understand what was going on before 1619. Right. The slavery, to whatever extent it existed in America, was facilitated by willing participants in Africa who look even darker than me. Right. So if you want to have an honest conversation about slavery, let's go to 1618 and go back. Right. You can't start at start at 1619, you know, but no, that, that's, that's, that's a faulty premise on its face. But I just want to say that as an aside. Yeah. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm glad you did, because at the end of the day, we the, the historic revisionism that has taken place in the culture has caused us to act as if slavery was unique to America uh, and, and that it was unique to white people only. Yeah. And, and other and, uh, and other and other blacks had nothing to do with it. Yes. Right. Other, other people who look like you and I had had absolutely had nothing to do with it. We're clean. Right. Yeah. Well, you, you, you look at it when you look at the transatlantic slave trade. This is a historical and unarguable fact. Right. You know who you know what nation had had more slaves than any other nation during the transatlantic slave slave trade. Tell them it, it's, it's probably a spot that many black people have gone to, to vacation. Right. Brazil. Brazil. Brazil got matter of fact. The uh, the uh, 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 the uh, central islands like like those who are closer to Africa on the trade route, there were more slaves dropped off in those nations in the Caribbean, in the Caribbean than America. America's way down the list. When you look at the top 10 countries. uh, That had the most slaves during the transatlantic slave trade, America's way down the list. Brazil's at the top. And Cuba's right behind them. So, but you're absolutely right. You know, when you talk, this, this again is why 
I cannot give validity to something called the 1619 project. You need to rename it the 1618 project and let's go backwards from there. Right. Anyway, anyway, that's just an aside again. Sidebar. That that was that was that was extra. You're not even gonna charge for that, are you? I'm gonna charge for that. That, That's free. (laughs) But you know, Omar, keeping in mind the words of Charles Spurgeon that I quoted earlier, that believes in Christ ought to view the issues of society and life by the by the light of righteousness. I want to go to Romans 13 for a moment, okay? I want to go to Romans 13 specifically. I want to go to Romans 13:4. In Romans 13:4, the Apostle Paul writes that the government, that government rather. Government, the very concept of which is established by God. We see that in Romans 13, 1. The very idea of government is established by God. But in Romans 13, 4, the Apostle Paul writes that government exists as, quote, a minister of God to you for good, unquote. That's Romans 13, 4. Paul says that government exists as a minister of God to you for good. Now, that raises at least three questions for us as Christians, at least three questions, particularly as it relates to our responsibility as citizens in a democratic republic to participate in political and electoral processes. OK, now those three questions are these. And again, I said at least three questions, not only three questions, but at least these three. Right. Question number one, what does Paul mean that government is a minister of God for our good? What does Paul mean by that? The government is a minister. Second question, what does the word good mean that Paul says that we're to derive from gov- uh, these ministers rather? They, they, they minister to us for our good. Well, what does the word good mean there by the Apostle Paul? And then the third question is, how is the good that Paul is talking about, how is the good that we're to derive from those who minister to us in government, how is that good made effectual right. in society? Okay, now, I want to address those three questions one at a time. First, what does Paul mean when he says government exists as a minister of God to us for good? Well, the word minister is the Greek noun diakonos. Diakonos, that's D-I-A-K-O-N-O-S. Diakonos, from which we get the English word deacon, Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly. So the word uh, deacon is derived from the Greek word diakonos. And in Romans 13, 4, the word minister denotes one who serves, okay, but not only one who serves. More specifically, that word diakonos means one who executes the commands of another, especially those of a master, okay? So when Paul says the government exists as a minister for our good, that word minister is is denoting someone who serves under the authority of a master, And who in those roles is executing the commands of that master. So what Paul is saying here in Romans 13, 4, is that the men and women whom God providentially ordains, again, according to Romans 13, 1, the men and women that God ordains to serve in positions of authority within government are ultimately and primarily there to serve and obey him in those roles. Right. Okay. Now, that reality is precisely why John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, said the following concerning those individuals who serve as ministers for our good. Calvin said this in his Institutes, quote, For to what high standards of probity, wisdom, mercy, sobriety, and innocence must they hold themselves, they being the men and women in government, when they realize that they have been ordained ministers of divine justice? 
How impudent would they be if they allowed the slightest iniquity access to their judgment seat, which they know to be the throne of the living God? How bold would they be if they pronounced unjust sentences with their lips, perceiving that their lips are meant to be instruments of God's truth? With what conscience would they sign some wicked decree with the hand which they know ought to write God's own verdicts? In short, if they remember that they are deputies of God, they must make every effort and take every care in all they do to represent to men an image of God's providence, God's protection, God's goodness, God's mildness, and God's justice. This should indeed touch the hearts of our superiors, for it teaches them that they are like God's lieutenants, and that it is to him that they will have to account for the work which they have done. This word of admonition should rightly spur them on, for if they do something wrong, they injure not only those whom they afflict unfairly, but God as well, whose holy judgments they defile. Again, they have abundant cause for consolation in reflecting that their calling is not profane or alien to a servant of God, but is a most holy task since the very work they do is God's work, unquote. That was John Calvin from his Institutes of the Christian Religion. So having defined what the word minister means in Romans 13, 4, Calvin gives us just a brilliant exposition of what the role of ministers should actually look like, which conversely should influence us as followers of Jesus Christ to be spiritually discerning with regard to the men and women we choose to represent us in government. But in addition to Calvin's commentary, Omaha, I want to point our listeners to Article 36 of the Belgic Confession of Faith. Article 36 in the Belgic Confession of Faith reads as follows, quote, We believe that our gracious God, because of depravity of mankind, hath appointed kings, princes, and magistrates, willing that the world should be governed by certain laws and policies, to the end that the dissoluteness of men might be restrained and all things carried on among them with good order and decency. For this purpose, he hath invested the magistracy with the sword for the punishment of evildoers and for the protection of them that do well. And their office is not to have, not only to have regard unto and watch for the welfare of the civil state, but also that they protect the sacred ministry and thus may remove and prevent all idolatry and false worship, that the kingdom of Antichrist might be thus destroyed and the kingdom of Christ promoted. They must therefore countenance the preaching of the word of the gospel everywhere, that God may be honored and worshiped by everyone and he, as he commanded in his word, unquote. That's from Article 36 of the Belgic Confession of Faith. So, when we take together, right, what, what John Calvin and the Belgian Confession are saying, we understand that those who represent us in government have a higher calling and purpose, one that has been established by God himself. And if that's the case for those individuals, then every Christian voter should consider that he or she, too, has a higher calling than simply casting a vote for a specific candidate on the basis that that candidate happens to align with their subjective perspective or or opinion on a particular issue. That's good. Now, consider the issue of public school education, for example. 
There is no argument, Omaha, that in America today, public schools, or as many may choose to describe them, government schools, have essentially become indoctrination centers for promoting and exposing children to such unbiblical ideals as critical race theory, intersectionality, and the normalization of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Right. Now, that, that much is an unarguable fact. Absolutely. Okay? Absolutely. But, but with that in mind, believers would do well to consider these words, these words of wisdom from the great Presbyterian theologian of Princeton Theological Seminary and then later of, of Westminster Theological Seminary, J. Gresham Machen, who in his classic work, Christianity and Liberalism, said this, quote, a public school system in itself is indeed of enormous benefit to the human race, but it is of benefit only if it is kept healthy at every moment by the absolutely free possibility of the com- of competition of private schools. A public school system, if it means providing a free education for those who desire it, is a noteworthy and beneficent achievement of modern times. But when once it becomes monopolistic, it is the most perfect instrument of tyranny which has yet been devised. Did you hear what Machen said? Yes. He's saying when it when public school education becomes monopolistic, which it has become, public education has become monopolistic. Machen says then it is the most perfect instrument of tyranny which has yet been devised. Okay, Machen goes on to say this. Freedom of thought in the Middle Ages was combated by the Inquisition, but the modern method is far more effective. Place the lives, listen to this, place the lives of children in their formative years, despite the convictions of their parents, under the intimate control of experts appointed by the state, for them then to attend schools where the higher aspirations of humanity are crushed out and where the mind is filled with the materialism of the day. And it is difficult to see how even the remnants of liberty can subsist. Such a tyranny supported as it is by a perverse technique used as the instrument in destroying human souls. So Machen here is saying that public schools are used as instruments in destroying human souls. He says in doing that, it is certainly far more dangerous than the crude tyrannies of the past, which despite their weapons of fire and sword permitted thought at least to be free. The truth is that materialistic paternalism of the present day if allowed to go unchecked, will rapidly make of America one huge, quote, Main Street, unquote, where spiritual adventure will be discouraged and democracy will be regarded as consisting in the reduction of all mankind to the proportions of the narrowest and least gifted of the citizens, unquote. That was Jay Gresham Machen pulling absolutely no punches in his book, Christianity and Liberalism. Now. Those words from J. Gresham Mason are important for us as Christian voters to consider, particularly as they relate to the education of our children, which begins in the home, not in the public school system. Now, my saying that is neither to suggest, imply, or infer that homeschooling is a feasible alternative for every Christian family, nor am I suggesting that homeschooling be a means of shielding our children from the realities of a sinful world outside the home, okay? Nevertheless, I do concur with the 20th century Presbyterian pastor and theologian Francis August Schaeffer, who said this, quote, isolating the student from large sections of human knowledge is not the basis of a Christian education. Rather, 
It is giving him or her the framework for total truth rooted in the creator's existence and in the Bible's teaching so that in each step of the formal learning process, the student will understand what is true and what is false and why it is true or false, unquote. That was Francis Schaeffer. And you know, Omaha, there was a time when public schools could be trusted to educate our children apart from any overtly political agenda. But those days are long gone. Those days have long since passed. Humanism undergirds much of what our children are taught in public schools today with the goal of making them, making those children in the image of the teachers and the professors who instruct them in terms of replicating the worldview that those teachers and professors themselves espouse. Okay, listen to what cultural apologist Dr. Peter Jones writes in his book titled The Other Worldview, subtitle Exposing Christianity's Greatest Threat. This is Dr. Peter Jones from the book The Other Worldview, Exposing Christianity's Greatest Threat. Quote, Humanism's respect for intelligence and rationality gave rise in Western culture to creative, independent thought that produced countless scientific and technological advances. Such progress laid the foundation for exploits as astounding as landing a man on the moon. However, independent human thought gradually came to be seen as the only norm for all truth, the ultimate source of all meaning people began to conclude that belief in a world created by God and in, the things, in, and in things spiritual was merely superstitious, primitive myth to be abandoned as unthinking delusion. For the modern man, religion had to go. Thus, roughly between the 18th and 20th centuries, the Enlightenment, or Age of Reason, dominated the Western mind as the great opponent of Christianity. Only the ability of the human being, based no longer on faith in God, but on faith in reason itself as the criteria of truth, would save us. A powerful optimism in the capacities of mankind to bring about a better world took the West by storm. Reason would replace primitive religious superstition and bring about the coming, listen to this, and bring about the coming glorious kingdom of man, the kingdom of man on earth. Unquote. That was Dr. Peter Jones from his book, The Other Worldview, Exposing Christianity's Greatest Threat. Now, in saying all this, I will acknowledge that not all public school systems are bad, but we would be both naive and irresponsible as Christians to think that there are not men and women in America who are running for political office at various levels of government who have their sights set on erasing from the hearts and minds of our young children every vestige of God, every vestige of Jesus Christ, of the Bible, and of the gospel that our children have been taught in their homes and churches. Man, come on, man, come on. Now, as much as you may want to, and I'm, speak, I'm speaking directly to those who are watching and listening to us right now, as much as you may want to raise your children in the, quote, discipline and instruction of the Lord, as, as, as the scriptures teach, as much as you may want to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord so that they become good little Christians, there are teachers, professors, and administrators in the public school system at various levels who want nothing more than to raise your children to be good little humanists, okay? 
Now, to place that assertion into greater context, I want to quote from the book Brainwashed. Brainwashed, subtitled How Universities Indoctrinate America's Youth. This book was written by Ben Shapiro. And in chapter seven of the book, Brainwashed, titled The War on God, Ben Shapiro says this, quote, the university system is the new city of Babel. Now, he's saying that Shapiro is citing Genesis chapter 11. The university system is the new city of Babel. Professors hope to build an intellectual tower that reaches into the heavens to challenge God. They drag organized religion through the mud and then shoot arrows at its dirty carcass. And Come once man. they, yo. Come on, man. I wish I could put, I wish I had this on the screen, man. You're going to need to slow that down because what, what he says here is, there's so much, again, I, I'm trying to wait. I'm trying to hold myself together. There's so much you've said in that section that we've got to have to go back and revisit for our listeners. So if you would take us through this quote again, and and and, and it's important, kind of what, what you're walking through here. Yeah. So again, this is Ben Shapiro from his book, Brainwashed, How Universities Indoctrinate America's Youth. Shapiro says this quote, the university system is the new city of Babel. Professors hope to build an intellectual tower that reaches into the heavens to challenge God. They drag organized religion through the mud and then shoot arrows at its dirty carcass. And once they've done that, they make moral judgments for all of mankind as if obtaining a Ph.D. conferred upon them some sort of supernatural moral wisdom. They wish to tear down biblical morality and place in its stead a morality of their own choosing. It is a degraded morality that they seek to promote. Without God, there is no right or wrong, no good and bad. Anything goes. Life itself loses value. And with that loss of value comes a loss of societal strength. In short, America becomes France. What these professors want is a jihad against God, a crusade against traditional morality. And their battlefields, listen to this, their battlefields are lecture halls full of innocent civilians. Wow. Unquote. Thoughts wow. Omaha, what you got, man? And there's a there's a ton that you just laid the groundwork for uh in, in that section. Um man, I, I I'll I'll start here and kind of go backwards because you did a lot by way of you start out with explaining and defining ministers if i remember that, mm-hmm. that part correctly right explain, romans 13 4 yeah you explain how based upon romans 13 4 government has the responsibility to be a minister of good mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. you start out by defining what it meant to be a minister and, and and I know I know you're going to circle back and kind of walk us through what what the good means, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Here's the thing I love about what we do, and this is why I think it's so important. If if you listen, if you're listening to us, maybe for the first time, if you've been invited with to this for the first time, you need to be sharing this with others. You need to be letting others know about the Just Thinking podcast, about this particular episode, because this will be something that you'll want to revisit again and again. We, we defined what it meant to be a minister mm-hmm. that. A minister of the good, and there's a reason for that. God has set an order of of, uh, of humanity up from a standpoint of guarding us against evil, mm-hmm. and, and and the order of humanity goes, you know, first self governance, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Talk about that about self governance that we should we should have a governance or 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 
or, or a, a self-control, self-righteousness, uh, not, not a righteousness that puts itself and says, I'm, I'm, I, I should receive heaven because I stand in right standing with God. Right. But a righteousness that governs our conduct, our mm-hmm. behavior mm-hmm. of the law mm-hmm. of God mm-hmm. to provide a self-governance for our own behavior. Mm-hmm. We should love the Lord our God with all our mind, soul, with, with, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, mm-hmm. and love our neighbor as ourselves. And then mm-hmm. from that self-governance, we have the, the role of, of the family, husbands mm-hmm. and wives, uh, children and, and, and parents, that, that the family. And, and from there, we have the, the governance of the church, mm-hmm. right? Church body is to provide additional governance. And from there, you have the governance of government. Of yes. In culture right now, that is totally shifted on its yep. head. Yep. It is absolutely upside. I mean, it, 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 it mimics so much of Genesis. When I think about the order of Genesis, and I'm, I'm totally off, off script right now, man, but, and I'll, I'll get back on. But when I think about the book of Genesis, I think about, you know, the, or, the order of creation. Um, it, it's God, man, woman, right? And I know people yep. panic because I, because, I, because I placed it in that order, right? God, yes woman creation yeah right? the yep. serpent comes in who's a part of creation a part and flips the script now yep. serpent yep. is instructing the woman yeah now going to the man yep. as they ignore god yeah yep. we have the same messed up order in culture right now right yeah. we, we, we're dependent upon government who's telling the church how to operate yeah right? and the church which is which is supposed to be informing the family is ignoring family altogether as yep. desi- desires to destroy the family. Yes, right? and 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 we're and self governance is out the window because we're all doing whatever we desire. Man, come on, bro. Come on, bro. <laughs> come on, man. That's actually what's that's actually what's happening in, in in culture. And so anyway, you you laid out a case in Romans thirteen for what it means for us to have government in its rightful place as a minister of good. And they have a responsibility. Yes. And I know you're going to talk about that, but as I studied this section, man, I, I noticed one that we, we wanted to make sure that we emphasized what it meant to minister. And, and, and I know you're going to talk about what it means to minister the good. Mm-hmm. As we walk through it, we always walk through proper biblical definitions. Yep. Biblical yep. We discussed the role of government. Uh, you talked about in particular, the area of education and you did a masterful job of, of, of explaining how in the area of education, we've become beholden to just absolute mm-hmm. secularism and chaos. Mm-hmm. As, as we kind of walked through the section, you sent me your notes. I started doing some real in-depth study about the role of education and culture. And so I wanted to go through a timeline. I actually walked through a timeline of mm-hmm. the formalization of education in the United States. And at the beginning of the process of education, it was primarily primarily the rightful responsibility, and you said this in your comments, it was the responsibility of parents mm-hmm. to educate the children. Yep. And and that was a that was a real deal back, you know, back when the in, during the country's uh, founding. And, and what we would begin to see is the influence of the local church being being a part of that. Mm-hmm. Early on, the Puritans were actually the first to develop formal mm-hmm. education uh, in a classroom setting. But but everything, even in that light, was localized. It, mm-hmm. it, they had more of what we would call co-ops. They had people who had expertise in specific areas come in and teach. It, but However, the, the, the teaching wasn't based upon reading, writing, and arithmetic. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't. 
the reading was actually fo- the, the learning rather the education was actually focused on moral character uh citizenship and a growing understanding of the word of god that mm-hmm. was the formation of, of mm-hmm. real early education in the united states um, thereafter man i studied the curriculum of the first school in the united states the first school in the united states was boston latin school and mm-hmm. it was Established in 1635 in Boston, Massachusetts. Wow. It was a boys only school and it was established again by the Puritans and it enrolled students from grades seven to 12, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It, this, this school was the, was, this school only enrolled the best students. So this was a competitive opportunity. This wasn't just, hey, everybody come, compulsory education. In fact, compulsory education in the United States would come way later. In fact, mm-hmm. this battleground the compulsory education system was a battleground between government wanting to provide equitable quality education these were their words they wanted to provide quote unquote equitable quality education in all of the districts whereas those who 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 wanted to wanted to maintain autonomy with regard to how children were educated said no we've got the education we know what mm. we want to do and you you and I hate the idea of of, of things being equitable right the, right yeah what what it inherently does is it is is it inherently is it ends up instituting partiality. We've got right. to from some in order to give to others. Well, you can't, yeah. right? I, I've said I've, I've said that constantly. You can't have e- what they what the world calls equality. You can't have equality without partiality. It's impossible. Na- name me a give me an example of any uh any any instance of equality that didn't involve uh, uh partiality. You can't. You, it's impossible to do. Right. right. So, so you're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, it, it would be the state of New York in 1791, which was the first state to actually to actually codify compulsory education. Uh, it, I say one of the first states. There were a number of states at the same time. The biggest one at the time was, was New York in 1791. It'd be the first to codify compulsory education. It mandated that kids from ages five through 18 would be in compulsory education in schools. And from the small, be- these are, had small beginnings in local districts, right? This was a small thing in a, in a locale to what we have now. What we have today is a national education system, that what national education budget, rather. The national education budget, Department of Education, has a $1.3 trillion budget, Daryl. Can you read man, that? man. $1.3 trillion budget. That's trillion with a T. With a T, brother, with a T. And there's a total of 81 million students in a variety of school districts from public, private, and charter schools throughout the United States. And this is what this is where we've come to now. We've gone from, from education based upon what was in the best interest of the child, based upon what a parent decided and determined and what they were going to provide in their locales, to a Department of Education 1.3 trillion with a T dollars, 81 million students in a variety of locales. This is the this is their idea of equitable. Add to that, and I'll 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 end with this. Add to that, we've got states in certain places and spaces where kids aren't even meeting the bare minimum requirements mm-hmm. for reading, writing, and arithmetic. Yeah. 1.3 trillion dollars, and they can't they can't meet the right. bare minimums in their area. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, the government's answer to uh, deficiencies in education is almost is always to throw more money at it. Right. Right. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. Never, it's never to the benefit of the kids. It's no, all, never, you know, never. We, we can go on. <laughs> well, anyway, you know, I, I want to continue Omaha my, with my examination of the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 13, 4. 
uh, by addressing the second, okay, the second of the three questions that I posed earlier, which is this. What does Paul mean when he says government is administered of God to you for good? Yes. Okay. Yes. What does Paul mean? By, what does what does the word good actually mean there in Romans 13, 4? And how are we to understand it in the context of the topic we're discussing today in this episode titled The Doctrine of Elections? Now, the word good in Romans 13, 4 is the Greek adjective Agathos, agathos, that's A-G-A-T-H-O-S. That word agathos denotes that which is of a good constitution or nature, that which is admirable or thought highly of, that which is perfect, distinguished, and is excellent in every respect. That same Greek word agathos is the the word that's used in Romans 12 too, a uh, verse that, that many of our viewers and listeners are familiar with, I'm sure, where Paul writes this. He says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is agathos, that which is good, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So the fact that government exists as a minister, right, as a diakonos, as a deacon, as a servant, if you will, a servant of God to us for good, it stands to reason then that professing Christians who are planning to vote in next month's election, regardless of the political office, should endeavor to support candidates who are committed to employing their God-ordained authority to bring about in society the kind of agathos, the kind of good that is acceptable and perfect as God defines it. As God defines it. Now, why is that important? Why is that important? Well, it's important because, as I said earlier, politicians are sinners, and so are the people that they govern. Yes. Okay? The governors are sinners, and the governed are sinners. So it's for that reason, primarily anyway, that we need to be even more circumspect and judicious in deciding how our votes are cast. Now, I say that against the backdrop of what the 19th century American historian and educator Emma Hart Willard said way back in the year 1843. Emma Hart Willard said this, quote, the government of the United States is acknowledged by the wise and good of other nations to be the most free, impartial and righteous government of the world. But all agree that for such a government to be sustained for many years, the principles of truth and righteousness taught in the Holy Scriptures must be practiced. The rulers must govern in the fear of God and the people must obey the laws, unquote. That was Emma Hart Willard in 1843. She said the rulers must govern in the fear of God and the people must obey the laws. Now, conversely, the Greek philosopher Solon, that's spelled S-O-L-O-N, Solon was a Greek philosopher who lived about six centuries before the birth of Christ. And he's regarded as one of the quote-unquote seven wise men of Greece. Solon said this, quote, Society is well governed when its people obey the magistrates and when the magistrates obey the laws, unquote. Now, I find it interesting that both Emma Hart Willard and the Greek philosopher Solon emphasized the significance of both the government and the governed obeying the laws of a society, which brings to my mind these words from the 19th century Welsh theologian and preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said this in his commentary on Romans 13. This is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones from his commentary on Romans 13, quote, it is only Christians who see the real need for the state. Yeah. 
It is Christians alone who really believe in sin, who know what sin is and the power it has in each person's life. They realize, as nobody else can, the extent to which sin can lead us, both individually and collectively. They also see more clearly than anyone else the necessity for controlling sin and its manifestations and results. That is why Christians should always be on the side of law and order. Humanists do not believe in sin at all, so they do not see the same need for legislation. And you will therefore find that, as a general rule, they are opposed to various laws. But not only do Christians see the need for law, control, and order, they know that God himself has made this provision for the maintenance of life. Try to think what life in the world would be like if you suddenly banished all the laws. If you banished the police force and everything that is designed by God to preserve law and order, unquote. That was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones from his commentary on Romans 13. And we know today, Omaha, right, that as we sit here in the year 2020, there are individuals and organizations in America who have absolutely no respect whatsoever for law and order. Right. Who want, who want to defund entire police departments right. and who you, who use fear, intimidation, anarchy and violence all in the name of justice and equality in order to bring about the kind of humanistic anti-God society that they desire to live in. Right. Now, the issue of law and order is of fundamental importance to many professing Christians in this election. Law and order is a universal concept. And by universal, what I'm saying is that there is no culture or society on this planet that doesn't subscribe to some construct of law and order. And we know from 1 Corinthians 14, that God is not a God of confusion. Right. Now, when you really think about it, Omaha, laws exist to protect us from one another. That's why laws exist. Absolutely. Laws exist to protect us from one another or to put it differently, to protect sinners from other sinners. That's fundamentally why laws exist. Mm -hmm. so, so for followers of Christ, the question becomes this. What is your theology of law and order? Come on, man. What is your theology of law and order? Is it based in the, in the objective truth of Scripture? Or is it shaped by the subjective and changeable constructs of the world? Now, as I pose those questions to our listeners and viewers, I'm reminded of these words from pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer said this in his book titled Culture, subtitled Living as Citizens of Heaven on Earth. This is A.W. Tozer from his book Culture, Living as Citizens of Heaven on Earth. Quote, as a church, we must embody in a supreme degree the purposes for which we exist. There are three purposes for which we exist on earth, to worship, to witness, and to work. Love that, man. When people are converted to Christ, they this is so good, man. When people are converted to Christ, they immediately change their citizenships. Yes. They are no longer citizens of earth except in a provisory way. They are now citizens of heaven. Christians, when they are born of God, immediately shift their citizenships and become pilgrims and strangers where they used to be citizens. Come on, man. All who are born anew have new natures. God becomes our father and Jesus becomes our brother. We become the habitation of the spirit and heaven is our fatherland. Why then are we left here on earth among strangers? We are left here to worship, to witness, and to work. Those three things 
are what we are here for. Unquote. That was A.W. Tozier again from his book, Culture, Living as Citizens of Heaven on Earth. What you got, Omaha? Man, that 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 section alone is worth just spending some time kind of exegeting all of what <laughs> all of what's there. When when you think about the, the reality that we're we 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 are so beholden to Americanism, right? That yeah. that we lose sight of the fact that that we <clears throat> our citizenship is actually in heaven. Yes. Uh, you said it this way, and I've, I've written this down a number of different times, man. God did not come to save society. What do you nope. say? God never came. Christ didn't come to save society. Christ came to save sinners. Absolutely. Christ didn't come to save society. He Absolutely. came to save sinners. And we, we, can, we can tell how off balance we are when the idea is that, that our, our uh, Christianity or the Christian, the version of Christianity that we practice, the American evangelicalism that we practice is for the purpose of saving America. Man, come on. Do you know what I'm come saying? Ho, 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 ho. Can we get some Hammond B3 up in here? Okay. Do, is, is, is the mascot? There he is. There is the mascot. Come on. We need, some, we need some Hammond up in here for this. Go ahead, Verge. What you got, bro? <laughs> that, the, the, the idea, man, the idea that, that, that we, that it's to save America, that, that, that what we're here for is for saving America is backwards. It's not even how how things are to operate. Our thought process. You said we, bro. How many how many different formats forms have we been in, where we have we have, we've made the statement that salvation does not save from the outside in, but salvation is a regenerative work of God from the inside out. Yeah, we said that. Matter of fact, it's a very specific point that we've made. See, that's how the social gospel works. That's how the social justice gospel works. The social justice gospel is proffering to you a, a doctor, a soteriology, right? A doctrine of salvation that works from the outside in. So the, so the social gospel says, well, we, 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 we change the structures, we change the institution, that, and then that changes the people. Right. Well, that, see, that, that, that's the distinction between the social gospel and the biblical gospel. Absolutely. And that, that's that's how it's so easy for government to become God. Yes, man. That's a great point. That's a brilliant point. Right? And I, 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 want our, I want our viewers and listeners to understand what we're saying here, bro. There's a distinction to be made between the social gospel and the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel works from the inside out. Mm-hmm. It works from the inside out. And as a result, as those who have been uh, affected by God's grace, by God's sovereign working, his monergistic work in their heart to regenerate them, as we obey God in the society in which we live, then this society is impacted through our obedience, through our righteousness, through our walking in righteousness, walking in obedience. But the social gospel proffers you a different soteriology and they say, well, no, we can change things from the outside. And, so and let's so, de- deconstruct these, these systems, these institutions, let's change these laws, and then that will make a, make a righteous society. No, 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 no. That's not what works. Not how it works. That's not how it works. That, well, every, every time that's, that's put in place, it fails miserably. That, 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 that's the whole backdrop behind, behind the, the, the social cultural Marxism that's now in place, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The idea that government can become God. In other words, their, their thought process is that the current government is actually the enemy. Yes. It, it, is, it is that which is the oppressed. So now what we need to do is we need to tear down that structure and rebuild and reframe the structure in our own image and light. This is the Tower of Babel all over again, right? That's the point that Ben, ben Shapiro was making. And here's, here's what people don't get is that the people who are advocating for these structures and institutions being torn down, they're going to be the new oppressors. Absolutely. 
if they if they, if they have the power now to deconstruct and destroy these uh, existing systems and structures, they're going to be the same ones who are going to rebuild the new ones. Absolutely, and they're going to become the new oppressors. And and what what you have to what you have to believe in order to begin doing that is you you have to believe. Uh, your 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 harmardiology has got to be so incredibly flawed. Your your thought process about about your your anthropology has to be flawed. You have to believe that man is sinless, that there is inherent righteousness right. in your ethnic right. background, in right. your in in, in in whatever intersectionality or aspect of intersectionality that that you that you advocate for. Well, I'm a black uh, uh, cis, uh, ho- homosexual. Uh, transgender, disabled individual. So therefore, righteousness for me is inherent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but look, but look, 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 but I mentioned the term humanism earlier. This is what the public schools are trying to make out of your kids. They're trying to make them good little humanists. But so, so, so the 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 the, the, the progressive humanist says, well, um, you know, we just need to keep trying. We just need to keep. We need to just get back on this uh, uh, moral treadmill and just keep, you know, turning it up another notch. You see, but but if you ha- if you inherently had the capacity to do that, right, you would be that. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. If if you if you if you had inherent righteousness, you would be something that's inherently righteous doesn't need improving. You can't improve on inherent righteousness, right? Because right. it's inherent. It's it's it, you 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 by nature. That's your nature. That's right. your constitution. Right. But, but 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 the humanism that's being proffered by the world says, well. The problem is not that it, that that uh, uh, socialism or communism or Marxism doesn't work. It just hasn't been tried by the right people. Right. That's the idea. Right. That, so, that, that yeah. we, we haven't we haven't had our, we haven't had our turn to go at it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so therefore, if we if we do, then that 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 should that should solve it. We, we've talked about the utopia, the idea of utopia that that's out there, uh, that, that, that somehow man can create his own heaven on earth, so to speak. And, and the actual word utopia means no place, nowhere, right? Nowhere. That's what the word means. That's what the, no, the word no, utopia literally means. Mm-hmm. It means well, no I, place. I, I'll, I'll, I'll say this just from a standpoint of, of commentary, man. There's, there's a number of thoughts. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about the defunding of police. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we, I spent some time. Which, on the- which Black Lives Matter supports, by the yeah. way. Here's the, here's the crazy part about that. They, they support the idea of no police. But here's what's happening in every instance where there is a, for example, there's the shooting in Philadelphia that took place with the, with the guy who wielded the knife. Walter something is his name. I can't remember the, the man's name. This is, this is rel- relatively new, maybe about two days ago that, that it took place. But in every instance where this has taken place, it wasn't simply, here's the thing, Daryl. It wasn't like police were driving by kind of ho-hum saw random black guy and said, you know what, let's 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 go shoot this guy. Right. 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 Yeah. What happened was something was happening that caused an individual who was there to feel like they needed additional protection to begin with. Yes. And as a result, they called those who who could help them. Right. When they called for help, they called the police to come and and fix it. Now if we were able to self-police if the defunding of police was 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 what worked, there would be no need. Why why would why would they even call the police? Man, come on, bro. What, right, see, right. Now, now, see now now you, now you letting people know why we call this podcast just thinking. Because <laughs> you need if you're gonna listen to us, you're gonna need a couple brain cells. Right. 
why would why would now you're Jake, thinking? See, why, why would why would Jacob Blake's former girlfriend ever feel the need to pick up the phone and dial nine one one if there was no need for police? <laughs> see, we can do that now. We're on video. We could we could do we, we could do that now. <laughs> <laughs> so those who listen, we just threw our hand, we just threw our hands in the air. Like, I mean, just think about that. Um, the situation with the guy in Philadelphia, he's wielding a knife. He got called because he was jumping on top of cars. Somebody called the police. I mean, it, anyway, I, I, I digress. Let me let me go back to, to my notes, man, before I go off the rails here. There, there's, a, there's a guy by the name of Irving Kristol. He's, he's known as the father of neoconservatism. He's an American journalist. He argued in an essay about 45 years ago, the very thing that we're talking about, which is he talked in that day. He, he, he called it in his day, public spiritedness, public spiritedness. He said the founding fathers knew and understood this. And what public spiritedness was, was it was the same as self governance. It was self governance. It was it was self-righteousness. In other words, not self-righteousness that you would say, I'm righteous before God, but a righteousness established by the fact that you examine the law of God and desire to apply that to your own life. So he says this. He said the founding fathers knew and understood this based upon their worldview. He says this, quote, public spiritedness means curbing one's passions and moderating one's opinions in order to achieve a large consensus that will ensure domestic tranquility. We think of public spiritedness as a form of self-expression and exercise in self-righteousness. The founders thought of it as a form of self-control and exercise in self-government. So we, we, we talk about this all the time, and, and it's important for people to understand that the, the, the nature of the type of, of the nature of the type of government we have, a, a democratic republic, works most efficiently when people apply self-governance, public spiritedness to their own lives. This is a critical part of what of, of what is necessary. Again, you talked about it at the outset. You talked about how government is established as a minister of good. Well, right. good on the basis of, of righteousness, of God's goodness. And that's what, the, what those who, who have the wills of the, the who own uh, or in the spaces of government are, are, are designed to apply. They're designed to rightly apply goodness to the lives of those for whom they govern. Right. You know, uh, you know, Omaha, as I listen to you, uh, I, I just want to say this. I, I know that there are professing believers, uh, perhaps some who are even watching and listening to us right now, who are of the opinion that Christians should not be involved in political processes at all. I know there are people, I'm not naive to that. There are people listening to us and watching us right now who are Christians who are of the opinion that Christians should not be involved in politics at all, that our, that our primary concern and obligation is for God's church and for meeting the needs of God's people. I, I, I know that there are people watching and listening to us right now who hold to that conviction. But with all, but with all due respect to those who may in fact be of that conviction, I would humbly offer these words from the book Practical Religion by the 19th century Anglican theologian J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle said this in his book Practical Religion, which if you have not read it, I strongly urge you, I humbly and, and but, but strongly encourage you to read Practical Religion by J.C. Ryle. Ryle said this, quote, true believers are always represented as mixing in the world, doing their duty in it and glorifying God by patience, 
meekness, purity, and courage in their several positions and not by cowardly desertion, not by cowardly desertion of them. Moreover, it is foolish to suppose that we can keep the world and the devil out of our hearts by going into holes and corners. True religion and unworldliness are best seen not in timidly forsaking the post which God has allotted to us, but in manfully standing our ground and showing the power of grace to overcome evil, unquote. That was J.C. Ryle from his book, Practical Religion. Now, what J.C. Ryle is saying there is that while we are in this world, the best way for Christians to effectuate gospel-centered influence in the world is to be what Jesus described metaphorically in the Sermon on the Mount as, quote, salt and light, unquote. That's Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. And one way that we can do that is by being involved in the electoral process and to do what we can as God gives us wisdom and discernment to support godly policies and to help elect men and women to office who embrace those godly policies toward the larger goal of what Ralph said as showing the power of grace to overcome evil. Now, speaking of showing power and grace to overcome evil, I believe that the evil of abortion is a prime example of how believers in Christ can put J.C. Ryle's counsel into action in a very practical way, particularly as it relates to that third question I posed earlier, which was this. This is the third of the three questions that I posed. How is the good, okay, so we exegeted good earlier. How is the good that we're to derive from those who minister to us in government made effectual in society? How is that good made effectual in society? Now, having said that, I'm fully aware of how divisive and it, it shouldn't, we shouldn't even have to say this, Omaha, because we're talking about believers. Right. I'm fully aware of how divisive an issue abortion is, right. even among professing Christians. We shouldn't even have to say that. Of all the issues that should not be divisive within the body of Christ is the issue of the murder of unborn image bearers of God. Right. But it is a divisive issue. In fact, for many professing Christians, abortion is the issue. So I want to temper what I said just a second ago. I want to temper my aforementioned comments with the following words from Dr. John P. Stead. That last name is spelled S-T-E-A-D. This is Dr. John P. Stead, who in the book titled Think Biblically, subtitled Recovering a Christian Worldview by John MacArthur and members of the faculty at the Masters University, in that book, Think Biblically, Dr. John P. Stead wrote this, quote, Evangelicals should reject becoming involved in a contest for control of political institutions because this is the modus operandi of modern authoritarianism and totalitarianism. It is only a short step from the control of government institutions to the, con to the control of not only people's public lives, but also their private lives. This control would occur even if done in the name of Christ. Christians should reject the temptation to seek political power for its own sake in view of the pervasiveness of a believer's sin capacity. That is very critical. I'm going to repeat that sentence again. Stead says Christians should reject the temptation to seek political power for its own sake in view of the pervasiveness of a believer's 
sin capacity. Will, quote, godly Christians, unquote, consistently make biblical decisions concerning morality and justice? That this has occurred only infrequently throughout the history of Western civilization testifies to the questionable validity of this belief. Christians cannot agree on many moral and social issues, let alone on how governmental institutions should be used. Believers need to be reminded that there can be no healthy or lasting change of social structures without a redemptive change in people, Mm. which is why Christ came more than 2,000 years ago. Hello. <laughs> Did you got, are, you, are y'all hearing what Dr. Stead is saying here? This goes, what he's saying here, and I'm going to repeat this again, but what Dr. Stead is saying here, Omaha, is exactly the point I was making earlier, that Christ didn't came to save society. Christ came to save sinners. Dr. Stead said believers need to be reminded. This is the, in, see, this is the inside out. Yes. See, what Dr. Stan here is saying, he's, he's expositing the inside out. He is giving you the distinction between the social gospel and the biblical gospel. This is the biblical gospel that Dr. Stan is talking about. Believers need to be reminded that there can be no healthy or lasting change of social structures without a redemptive change in people which is why Christ came more than 2,000 years ago. Dr. Stan says what America needs more than anything else is an evangelizing church. Man, this is fire. He says what America needs more than anything else is an evangelizing church exercising the power of the cross to change people's lives. Yes. Why am I not hearing the mascot right now? (laughs) This says what America needs more than anything else is an evangelizing church exercising the power of the cross to change But let me add something to this. Dr. Stead says that this is what America needs. Yes. Yeah. America needs an evangelizing church exercising the power of the cross to change people's lives. But you know who else needs that? You know what else needs that? The church needs that. Yeah, come on, man. The church needs an evangelizing church exercising the power of the cross to change people's lives. But the church, especially in America, the evangelical church, especially in America, doesn't believe that anymore. Right. We don't believe that anymore. We do not believe that the power of the cross can change people's lives. We don't believe that anymore. We do not. That's why you have denominations like the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't care what you call yourself. You can call yourself Southern Baptist Convention. You can call yourself Great Commission Baptist. You can call yourself whatever you want. But when you when you inculcate into your missiology Resolution 9 with critical race theory, you're telling the entire world that you don't believe that the gospel is the power in and of itself to change people's lives. Oh, man. So Stead says here that America needs this. No, 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 no. Not just America. The church needs this. Yes. The church doesn't even believe this anymore. Mm. Man, don't get me started, bro. Let, let, me, let me continue with Dr. Stead's quote. I'm not even finished with Dr. Stead's quote. <laughs> but I had to park right there because he nailed it. He did. He nailed it. He said believers need to be reminded there can be no healthy or lasting change of social structures without a redemptive change in people. And that's what the gospel does. That's what the power of the cross does. The power of the cross changes people's lives. Mm -hmm. 
But we don't believe that anymore, Omaha. Nope. Dr. Stead continues. He says it's people whose primary citizenship in is in heaven. Let there me stop is, right here again. There it is again. There it is again. Let me stop here again. Yep. Dr. Stead says as people whose primary citizenship is in heaven. See, this is why I read 1 John 2, 15 to 17 early in, first, uh, in Colossians chapter 3, rather. Colossians chapter 3 and 1 John 2. Because those texts help 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 give us a mindset that that we're that we're citizens of heaven primarily why in the right. world why right. in the world are we working so hard to use politics and elections to change a world that is passing away why yeah Stead says as people whose primary citizenship is in heaven and as members of Christ's kingdom we are confronted by a world system concerned with gaining political power the church must reject the temptation to control political institutions while seeking locally to go to alter the lives of those around it. Mm -hmm. Listen to this. Dr. Stead says by their speech and lives, Christians must show men and women that there is only one way to have a right relationship with God, the way of the cross. The way of the cross. Believers in Christ need to stand in every way, spiritually, intellectually, morally, and politically, as the vital separated alternative. Separated alternative. See, let me pause here again. Please, if you're watching, please indulge me. I appreciate you, you all's patience, but this is how Virgil and I roll. Yeah. This is what you get when you listen to the Just Thinking podcast. Dr. Stead says that, 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 that by our conduct, by our speech and our lives, we exemplify to the world that we're separated. Mm -hmm. We're separated. But what's the church trying to do right now today, Omaha? We're trying to engage the world and become friends with the world. Right, 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 right. We're trying to bring the world into the church. Why? Even Bro, Jesus himself wait, prayed wait, in John wait, 17. Wait, 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 wait. Man, you come said, on. You just said a mouthful there. I mean, let's let's park on what you just said with we're trying to bring the world into the church. I mean, we have we have decided to be relevant. Right. And I mean, we, we, it, it's so funny when we do this because we're, we're trying to be cool. It's like the it's like the very nerdy, uncool kid who tries to put on the cool clothes, the cool hat and, the, and all of it doesn't fit, none of it fits him. Right. It's right. all oversized. And he, <laughs> and he's trying to be cool when 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 he ain't cool because he was never designed to do to to be that and do that. What he was designed to do was to be a reflection of the very bride of Christ and to find beauty in that rather than trying to emulate what he sees in the world. I love Paul Washer gives the analogy of the of, of the of the king who's who's left his his you know he's left his wife for the care of those, his, 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 uh, his, uh, the princess in the care of those in the kingdom only to come back and find that, that they've prostituted this, this, uh, th this princess. Right. Uh, and, 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 and an effort to keep, keep the attention of, of those who are part of the kingdom. We, right. we do the very same thing in, in our, in our day and time. And we, we, that's exactly what the church does when, whenever we try to become relevant or to or to minimize our our stances on particular issues in order to draw people closer to us with the idea that we can improve upon the gospel of God, which which the gospel of God is God's power and the salvation at Romans one sixteen. 
But, but we, we think we can improve upon it in some way, that we can do it better than God dis- designed it to be done. And so we, we doll it up and fix it up. And, and I mean, we, we do it having certain kinds of music at the very beginning of, of, of worship services in an effort to make people feel comfortable. Right. Where, where in Scripture were we ever told to make people feel comfortable as they come into the gospel? Right. I mean, l- listen, you're absolutely right. Omar. I have so much to add to what you just said. <laughs> <clears throat> the church. OK, the church, just the very phrase itself, by definition, distinguishes, distinguishes itself and says to you right. intrinsically. Right. That there is a, there is something out there that's not the church. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, seriously. The church, not the church. Right. I'm looking right now at John 17, yep. the high priestly prayer of Jesus, yep. where he yep. says in John 17, yep. verse 9, Jesus said he, he's, he's, he's praying to his father. He says, I ask on their behalf, that is the, the behalf of believers. He's, this is John 17, 9. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. Yes. Jesus didn't pray for the world. He prayed for believers. Absolutely. So and he goes on to say in verse nine, he says, again, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. Jesus makes this clear. Right. Two, two things Jesus makes clear in John 17. There is the church and there is the world. Right. That's number one. Right. Number two, Jesus prayed for the church. He did not pray for the world. Right. This, this is clear. So why in the world are we trying to work so hard to ingratiate ourselves? to a a a a a a world that by design is right. supposed to hate us right you are supposed to be hated by the world that's right. that's that's Matthew 5 that's the sermon on the mount blessed are you if you are persecuted right. for my sake for righteousness sake so but Dr. Stead here he says as the vital separated alternative to a world system that glories in materialism self indulgence and political power, unquote. We're supposed to be distinct from that. That that is what distinguishes us from the world. The church is for believers. It is not for unbelievers. There is that. There is not a single unbeliever in Christ's church. Right. Right. Not one. Well, the thing the thing about that, Daryl, is I think. Well, go ahead, Omaha. I'm turning it over to you, man. Go ahead. For the, mo- for the most part, I think I think we believe that we can help God out. Like he he's not he's not all powerful to bring every tribe, tongue, and nation into his church without our help. Right. So we need, we need additional helps like critical race theory, like black lives matter movements, uh, and all other kinds of secular philosophical means brought into the church in order to help God out because he's, he's really impotent to draw all men unto himself. And and think about what you just said. Think about it, especially with the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the tribe, tongues, and nation. That, that's, right. a, that's, a, that's a point of emphasis, emphasis for woke, uh, you know, woke pastors and woke churches, right? The, the, right. The woke, we, need to, we need to become more multicultural. Uh, we need to become more diverse. Well, well, you know, when they say, when, when they say multi-ethnic, what they really mean is multicolored. That's, right. that's really what it is. So let me just make that, get that, right. get, clear that up right there. Right. But I think about how you look in uh, Revelation chapter 7, Right. Where we read, right, after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne. Now, my question to those folks who are so into the point you made, Omaha, where we got to help God out. We got to help God make his church be what he's already said his church is going to look like. Now, think about this. The, The reality of that 
uh, uh, diversity is in the book of Revelation. Right. Now, in the book of Revelation is how things end up. Right. Now, God, God wrote the book of Revelation. So if God says in, the, in chapter 7 of the last book of the Bible, where all the eschatology comes to its uh, uh, consummation, why do you think you need to help God achieve something that God has already said has been achieved? Right. In his well, word. Well, be, well because, because God understood everything except for the oppressed <laughs> and the oppressor class. And uh, <laughs> man, right? God I'm, under- la- I'm, I'm laughing because what you're saying is it's not, not that it's funny. It's, it's yeah, this is what people People believe people are teaching yeah. that right now. Yeah, yeah. God, God understood everything except for police brutality, mm-hmm. except, except for, for racism, racism, except for George Floyd. Yeah, Breonna Taylor. He could have never had in his mind chattel slavery in yep. America. Yeah, he could have never had that in his mind. Yeah, so, Jim, Jim, Jim Crow went way over God. Yeah, it, it missed God. God missed Jim Crow, and uh, and and needed people like James Cone to establish, mm-hmm. you know, black liberation theology, mm-hmm. right? He, mm-hmm. he needed somebody to come along and reframe his theology. The, 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 <laughs> this is so ludicrous. It is, man. <laughs> it really is. It really is. He needed James Cone. God needed James yeah. Cone. God needed a Kelly Brown Douglas. Yes, yes. Uh, a, a, God needed a Patricia Hill Collins. Right. Uh, you right. know, so yeah. So, so, yeah so God, God uh, was just, God, I guess God was just dozing. When yeah. all those th- things happen in America, yeah, absolutely right. You know, I I I believe the subject we're dealing with here in this episode of the Justin and Podcast Omaha is a good opportunity to remind ourselves of Jesus' words in a verse that many of us are familiar with, but too often take too casually. And I'm speaking of John eighteen thirty six, John chapter eighteen verse thirty six, where Jesus says to Pilate, "My kingdom, excuse me, my kingdom is not of this world." That's right. John eighteen thirty six. Now. The word kingdom in John 18, 36 is the Greek noun basileia. Basileia is spelled B-A-S-I-L-E-I-A. Basileia, that's where we get the English word basilica. Now, in his commentary on John 18, 36, the 18th century Bible expositor and commentator Matthew Henry provides some hermeneutical clarity on what Jesus actually meant when he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. This is Matthew Henry from his commentary on John chapter 18, verse 36, quote, Christ gave an account of the nature of his kingdom. Its nature is not worldly. It is a kingdom within men set up in their hearts and consciences. Its riches, spiritual. Its power, spiritual. And its glory within. Its supports are not worldly. Its weapons are spiritual. It needed not nor used force to maintain and advance it, nor opposed any kingdom but that of sin and Satan. There you again. Let me just diverge for a second. Matthew Henry is making my point. Christ came to save sinners, not society. Yep. Matthew Henry says Jesus didn't use force uh, to maintain his uh, his kingdom because it's within. Yeah. Nor did he oppose any kingdom. The only kingdom Jesus opposed was that of sin and Satan, Matthew Henry says. Yeah. It's object and design. This is Christ's kingdom. It's object and design are not worldly. When Christ said, I am the truth, he said, in effect, I am a king. He conquers by the convincing evidence of truth. Right. He rules by the commanding power of truth. 
the subject the subjects of this kingdom are those that are of the truth unquote that was matthew henry in his commentary on john 1836 now my point in citing john 1836 and quoting matthew henry on that verse is this politics at its most fundamental level is the building business of kingdom building yes i want our listeners to get that politics at its most fundamental is the business of kingdom building. Politics is about building earthly kingdoms and legacies whose foundations are constructed on sinking sand. (laughs) And as much as we should aspire that truly godly men and women minister to us in government, as Christians, we are neither to view nor use politics as a means or vehicle to engage in kingdom building here on earth. That's good. All right? It is crucial that we understand that. Kingdom building is just another term for idolatry. Now, we don't often regard politics as an idol, but it certainly can be. Absolutely. In fact, I want to expound for a few minutes on the issue of idolatry by quoting from the book, Living in Union with Christ, subtitled Paul's Gospel and Christian Moral Identity. Living in Union with Christ, Paul's Gospel and Christian Moral Identity. This is Arthur Grant McCaskill, who in that book writes this, quote, We often think of idolatry in terms of putting something in the place that should properly be occupied by God alone. That is not wrong, but it needs to be taken a step further. Idolatry is defined by its subjects as much as it is by its objects. Do not miss that, folks. Idolatry is defined by its subjects as much as it is by its objects. We are constitutionally idolatrous. What McCaskill is saying there is we are by nature idolatrous. Right. He continues, we are, con- we are constitutionally idolatrous, and that is why we turn things into idols. We put such things in the place that God should occupy because it suits our self-centeredness to do so. Yeah. Even if the things we so place then come to enslave and tyrannize us, we put physical Id- idols that represent God's in that place because we see them as things that can be controlled by us. We can appease them, satisfy them, and manipulate them through our rituals, our worship, and our offerings. If we give them the right things, they will give us rain or sunshine or the right kind of children. When we approach God, we do so on his terms. But when we approach our idols, we do so on our terms, since they are really the things we have made to be set in God's rightful place. When those idols then enslave us, it is really ourselves that hold us prisoner because those selves are the things in which sin dwells. When we put other things in that place, the same problem is at work. The self is idolatrous because it is self-centered and not God-centered. And having idols of all kinds is the easy way to satisfy the cravings of the self until the cravings grow worse and the idols grow less rewarding. The easy route, McCaskill closes with this, the easy route to gratification has led us to being owned by the very things we thought would serve our desires. Right. Unquote. Right. Now listen, regardless of what issues you or I happen to be most concerned with, or are most passionate about as this election approaches on November 3rd, the immutable fact is that this world is passing away. I said that earlier. This world is passing away. Now, that reality should point us back to what the scriptures declare, okay? 
in such passages as 2 Peter 3.13. But according to his promises, we, that is believers, the church, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Along those same lines, consider what Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes. You see, when we get all hung up in politics and stuff, we're working for the food that perishes. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which, of son, which the Son of Man will give to you. Not some politician, not the president, not the governor. The Son of Man will give you this food that endures to eternal life. Then there's also Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And then finally, Psalm 146, verse 3. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. No salvation. Now, I believe the aforementioned passages of Scripture are germane to the conversation we're having today, Omaha, because if we were honest, we'd have to admit that there are professing Christians out there right now who view politics as salvific, mm -hmm. meaning they are of the belief that if Christians would simply organize and band together under the same political banner and vote either for or against this particular candidate or that particular candidate, that it will somehow result in our society becoming more righteous. Right. And when that doesn't happen, Many Christians tend to become despondent, dejected, and downcast about the future. But, but I would remind them, I would remind them of these lyrics from the, from the hymn, This is my, father wor my Father's World, one of the verses that goes this way. This is from the hymn, This is My Father's World. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that those are wrong seems oft so strong. God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Now, what we have to remember is what I said earlier in this episode, Omaha, that politicians are sinners before they're elected to office, and they remain sinners while they're in office. So no matter how polished or articulate a politician may appear to be on the outside, the words of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, apply to them all as well as anyone else. It says, indeed, this is Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So we would all do well to keep in mind the verses of Scripture I cited earlier, especially Psalm 146, 3. Do not trust in princes, an immortal man in whom there is no salvation, and not place a level of trust in any political candidate that is above and beyond what their inherently sinful nature makes them uh, capable of. Okay, any thoughts on that, Omaha? couple of things. One is that uh, when you, you get that, if you go back and want to look at a theme of what we've been saying, it's that Christ came to save sinners, not societies. And that as saved sinners, we have a responsibility to be actively engaged in the political process. Yes. Not from a standpoint of seeing it as salvific, right? but seeing it as for what it is, they are minister of the good. And the only way that they're going to be able to properly minister good is if those who are righteous elect the, the right kinds of people into office Bingo. with the hope that they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Yes. And, 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 and then by example are, 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 are displaying the kinds of things that they need to in, in their governance of those that, that, they're, that they're providing oversight for. Absolutely. 
Founders knew and understood this. In fact, uh, I'll quote from two founders and then Alex de Tocqueville in his, in his work, uh, Democracy in America, Volume 1, he says this, despotism may govern without faith. So, so, so if, 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 we're, if we're looking at despotism, despot, the, the person who, who, who doesn't govern, just kind of just chaos, right, who provides oversight for, for a chaotic regime, a, a crazy regime, yeah, you can, you can have a people who aren't filled with faith and experience that, absolutely. But liberty cannot. We, we, re, liberty requires those who have, who have a functioning faith on the inside of them. It says, he said this, religion is much more necessary in a republic than in a monarchy. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. How is it possible that a society could escape destruction if the moral tie is not strengthened in proportion as the political tie is relaxed? And what can be done with a people who are their own masters if they are not submissive, submissive rather, to deity? In, in other words, we have a responsibility as those who are free not to not to operate as if we, we live in this anarchy, mm-hmm. but we have a responsibility to have self-governance, self-control. Again, all goes back to what we've been saying. Yep. Governance from the inside right. out, yep. not outside in. Another another one, Benjamin Franklin, who said this, quote, we have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build a house, they that labor build it in vain. I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of, of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to the future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter, from this unfortunate instance, despair of establishing a government by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, or conquest. Hmm. That's a powerful statement that he's Hmm. making. Benjamin Franklin's understanding that apart from God, we, it, it, apart from God's uh, transformative power on the inside of us, mm-hmm. governing what we bring together in the way of a politic, we're, we're working in vain. And, and that we, 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 may, we may as well let go of all that we're doing. And, and, and that's what we're caught in this particular episode. That's what we're calling everyone back to. It's we're calling them. You said it at the top. We we cannot allow our doctrine, our understanding of God's word, be left at the doorstep of the voting booth. Yep. We, yep. we can't yep. do that. We, we that we would be foolish to do that. Thomas Jefferson understood. He said this quote: "Liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis." a conviction in the minds of people that mm-hmm. these liberties are a gift of God mm-hmm. and that they are not, va- and then, and that they are not to be violated, but with his wrath. Mm-hmm. In other words, God is sovereign in all things and we need to be submitted to his governance. Most importantly, rather than beholden to government as God. Amen, bro. I couldn't agree with you more there. You know, you look, you look at all that's been said to this point, Omaha, a question that each of us who names the name of Jesus Christ must ask ourselves is this. What is your motive when you go out to vote? Mm-hmm. What is your motive? That's so good. Be, be honest with yourself. What is your motive when you go out to vote? What is it that inspires you to vote the way you do? Is it your own self-centered desires and concerns that drive you? 
Or is it the gospel of Jesus Christ and a desire to see his righteousness reflected through those who, by God's providential will, have been ordained by God to minister to us for our good? You know, when you look at the upcoming election in that light, how we cast our vote becomes something that every professing Christian should think very seriously and circumspectly about. Because it is indeed a very weighty proposition when we stop to think that God will hold each of us accountable, not only for how we cast our vote, but also for the motives right. that inclined us to cast our votes the way we did. Bro, that's so I, I, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to pause you there for a second, because, man, do we have a absolute mess going on right now with regard to people's motivations? Man, come on. As they're writing down what they've been motivated by and how they're being, how they're motivated and what they're looking at. I mean, we, we're watching all kinds of twists and turns of, of a biblical worldview in order to provide cover for voting for, for policies that we know are antithetical to a biblical worldview. Right. I, call, I call that pretzel theology. Talk to me. <laughs> they, they are twisting themselves into pretzels. Mm-hmm. Trying to t- trying to come up with a hermeneutic that's going to justify them voting for a particular candidate o- over and against another. Yes. Okay, and I don't know if our our viewers and our listeners have have caught on to this yet, but we've not mentioned a single candidate's name this entire episode. Right. And we don't plan to. Right. We haven't mentioned a single political party by name in this entire episode, and we don't plan to do that. Right. But that's what I call pretzel hermeneutics. Right. You, right. You, you, you're just trying to take the word of God and you're trying to genuflect uh, uh, so many times that you just wrap your your hermeneutic becomes pretzel shaped. Right. Right. In, in, right. in order to in, in order to take the word of God and create a, a self-centered human hermeneutic that satiates your own conscience. Yep. Provide you're trying to do what you know is wrong. You, what you know is wrong. Right. But you know it. Now. But 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 yeah, I think I'm gonna have to trademark that one too. Uh, on Harvard. <laughs> pretzel hermeneutics. I feel like trademarking stuff today. Right, pretzel pretzel theology, man. The, the the commenters are saying that's that's the that's the one right there. Pretzel theology. Now, as we prepare to close out this episode of the Justin and Podcast Omaha, I want to remind our listeners of this: politics is not salvific. Man. Politics is not salvific. Think about this: saviors are not elected. Come on, man. Saviors are not elected. Politicians cannot save you. There is but one savior of the world, and he is not up for re-election. Come on, come okay? on. Okay? There is but one savior of the world, and he is not up for re-election. Absolutely. Now, as election day approaches, let the words I read earlier from Psalm 146.3 resonate in your mind. Do not trust in princes immortal man in whom there is no salvation. Now that word trust in Psalm 146.3 means to have confidence in, to find security in, to find safety in, to set one's hope and confidence in. That's what that word trust means in Psalm 146.3. And that includes not placing our confidence and trust even in those politicians who profess to be followers of Christ because they are fallible as well. Right, right. As Charles Haddon Spurgeon said in his sermon titled Hideous Discovery, which he preached on July 25th, 1886, Spurgeon said this, quote, Sin is not a splash of mud upon man's exterior. It is a filth 
generated within himself, unquote. That was Charles Spurgeon from his sermon, Hideous Discovery. Now, conversely, the renowned English Puritan of the 17th century, John Owen, in his book, Indwelling Sin in Believers, said this, quote, The one who understands the evil of his own heart is the only useful, fruitful, solid believer. Others are fit only to delude themselves and to disquiet families, churches, and every association, unquote. That was John Owen from Indwelling Sin and Believers. Now, followers of Jesus Christ are to place their confidence and trust in Christ and in him alone. Mm -hmm. And toward that end, I would I would encourage our, our 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 viewers and listeners to strive to follow the example of the psalmist, who in Psalm thirty one verses fourteen and fifteen said this. He said, "But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. Mm-hmm. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand." Now, I will one last time remind our, our listeners of what Charles Spurgeon said at the beginning of this episode that we are to regard the issues and individuals with whom we are confronted in this upcoming election by the light of righteousness. Yes. We are not to regard these issues through the subjective lens of our emotions, our feelings, our circumstances, our traditions, our personal loyalties, or for political expediency. Mm-hmm. You see, Omaha, what often gets us in trouble when it comes to politics is that we look to politicians and to the government in general to say yes to what God has already said no to. Mm-hmm. That gets us in trouble all the time. The yeah. truth is, we, we don't want, the truth is, see, the truth is, we don't want to be told no by God. Right, right, right. We don't got to tell us no. So what do we do? We, we don't want to take no from God, so what do we do? Well, we, we deliberately search for ways to circumvent and ignore the loving and protective boundaries that God has established for us so that we can be our own God. Right. And live our own lives in complete autonomy from him, who is the only true God. And yeah. one of the ways we do that, one of the ways we, we, we disconnect, d- disconnect ourselves from God and his, his authority, one of the ways we do that is, is through politics. We elect men and women to political office who will help us fulfill our own sinful desire to be our own God. So right. we, we put people in office who will tell us yes to what God has already said no to. Yes. That's precisely why same-sex marriage is now legal. <laughs> and why it's legal to murder unborn image, image bearers right. of God. That's right. That's why homosexuality, lesbianism, and transgenderism are now protected behaviors on the civil rights law. Mm-hmm. All because we refuse to submit ourselves to the boundaries that God has established. Right. Now, before we close out, bro, anything you want to add to anything that I said to this point? I'll just simply, I'll simply say, I mean, that goes back to what, what I quoted at the very beginning when I, when I opened up uh, 1 Samuel 8, right? Yep, they, exactly. That's what the people of Israel wanted. They they yeah. wanted their own way. They did not want to follow the theocracy of God. They did not want to follow the the, the, the God God's rule. Uh, they wanted to have things their own way. They wanted to separate themselves from the responsibility of obeying God's law. Their hope was that they would get laws from a king that looked more like what they were used to because they knew that the king would be sinful himself. And so that's what they wanted to endure. So we're doing the exact, there's nothing new under heaven, nope. under the sun, nothing nope. new. And I'm telling y'all again, man, man, will you take us back to, to, to that Old Testament passage that you walked us through earlier? Y'all better be careful what you ask God for. Absolutely. Because you just might get what you asked for. Right. He, he just might give you exactly what you're asking for. You know, so as we close out in, in Colossians 3, 2, the Apostle Paul exhorts believers to set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Set your mind on the things above. Yes. Not on the things that are on earth. 
Now, it is with those words of Colossians 3 in mind that I want to share with our listeners, and I'm going to close with this. I want to share with our listeners these words from the book, The Loveliness of Christ by the Puritan theologian Samuel Rutherford. I want to share these words of Samuel Rutherford from his book, The Loveliness of Christ, as an encouragement to keep our hearts and minds trained and fixed on Jesus Christ and to not put our faith or or trust in the mutable promises of fallible politicians. That's good. Okay. Samuel Rutherford says this in his book, The Loveliness of Christ, and I will close with this and then turn it over to you, Omaha, to close this out. Sure. Rutherford says this, quote, There is much in our Lord's pantry that will satisfy his children and much wine in his cellar that will quench all their thirst. Let me pause there for a second. Yeah. There is no politician on this planet who can say that they will quench all your thirst. No politician can say that. Okay. Rutherford continues, hunger for him. That is hunger for Christ until he fills you. He is pleased with the importunity of hungry souls. If he delays, do not go away, but fall a swoon at his feet. Mm-hmm. Every day we may see some new thing in Christ. His love has neither brim nor bottom. How blessed are we to enjoy this inevitable treasure, the love of Christ, or rather allow ourselves to be mastered and subdued in his love so yeah. that Christ is our all and all other things are nothing. Mm-hmm. Oh, that we might be ready for the time our Lord's wind and tide call for us. There are infinite plies in his love that the saint will never be able to unfold. I urge upon you a nearer and growing communion with Christ. There are curtains to be drawn back in Christ that we have never seen. There are new foldings of love in him. Dig deep, sweat, labor, and take pains for him and set by as much time in the day for him as you can. He will be one with labor. Live on Christ's love. Christ's love is so kingly that it will not wait until tomorrow. It must have a throne all alone in your soul. It is our folly to divide our narrow and little love. It is best to give it all to Christ. Lay no more on the earthly than it can carry. Lay your soul and your weights upon God. Make him your only and best beloved. Your errand in this life is to make sure an eternity of glory for your soul and to match your soul with Christ. Your love, if it could be more than all the love of angels in one, would be Christ's due. Look up to him and love him. Oh, love and live. My counsel is that you come out and leave the multitude and let Christ have your company. Now, Rutherford closes with this says, please listen closely. Rutherford says, let those who love this present world have it. He said, let those who love this present world have it. But Christ is a more worthy and noble portion. Blessed are those who have him. Amen. Unquote. That was Samuel Rutherford from his book, The Loveliness of Christ. Omaha, you want to take us out, man? Any final thoughts and then pray, pray us out of this episode? Yeah, man. I, I'm, I'm glad for those who joined us, man. We, we, we do what we do. And uh, we, we, we are, we're two hours in and, and uh, thankful for those who stuck with us. A number of you did. 
my my ask is that you share this far and wide uh, over the course of the next few days, uh, running up to the election. I think what's here, content wise, uh, we've spent time with and have walked through to the point that uh, we 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 want you to be encouraged uh, and to know uh, exactly uh, where your conscience uh, lies uh, as a believer, and 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 rightly dividing that which is of this world and that which, I mean, as Jesus would say it this way, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render unto God that which is, is the Lord's. And so I think, I think it's incredible. It's incredibly important for us to consider that to the, to the point that you made early on that we don't take, we don't leave our doctrine at the door. Um, and many right now are trying to justify all kinds of decisions on the basis of less than biblical ideas, less than biblical means. And so we're going to encourage you not to do that uh, and to and to give thought to that. Uh, glad that we got a chance to do this in, as, as a live and uh, we'll consider what that looks like moving forward. We hope you guys enjoyed that. Let me close uh, with a word of prayer and then, I'll, and then I'll bid you a good night. Father God, we give you thanks and praise. We, uh, we worship you. We adore you. We're grateful uh, for you and the sending of your son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for us as sinners. You came to save sinners. Uh, and as a result, we would have impact on society, but the, your goal is to save us as sinners. You, 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 you designed your, your, your gift of, of your son in such a way that, that we would be drawn unto you as, as, as Father God. We would be drawn unto you by, by, the, by your very spirit. We're grateful for that. We're thankful for the gospel and its power. We trust it uh, to, to, to conform us into the very image of your dear son. I'm grateful for those who've listened, uh, for those who've come into contact with this. I pray for those who listen now and even later uh, that, that they too would be drawn by the very message of the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, for the forgiveness of sin. I pray for our nation. I pray for our, our country. I pray for those leaders uh, that they that they too would, would hear your call and be conformed into your very image. I pray that, that again, Lord God, that you would, you, 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 we, we thank, we're thankful uh, for what you're going to do in the days to come and uh, that we would get to see your sovereign hand as you're the one who puts kings uh, mm-hmm. and those in leadership into their rightful place. Uh, so we trust you in that. Uh, we, we'll, be, we'll be beholden to you as a result. We thank you for it. Thank you for those who are here. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, grateful that you all joined us. Uh, man, this has been a good one, bro. How you feel, Daryl? Feel fantastic, man. Good. Fantastic. Thanks to everyone who joined, who tuned, who turned, uh, tuned in rather. Absolutely. Thank you all so much. It means a lot to us. It means a lot to us. Daryl and I are always overwhelmed by the response here. Um, and uh, we just want to encourage you to share this, share this on your, if you're watching us on Facebook or on YouTube or what have you, share the link on YouTube, uh, share this on your page, let others see it in review. Uh, we love you guys. We're grateful for you. We uh, will definitely be watching the election cycle and seeing what's happening, but more importantly, and our eyes will be focused on Christ and Him crucified, and uh, that'll be that'll be where where we go. Thanks for joining us again for another edition. Check in next time with us for the next edition of the Just Thinking Podcast. Take care. God bless. Hey, if you're looking for a conference to be at be at the beginning of the year, there's one that you absolutely don't want to miss. It's the Founders Ministries Conference, the National Founders Conference on the Doctrine of God, January 21st through the 23rd of 2021. You won't want to miss this one. It's going to be absolutely amazing. Daryl and I are planning to be there. We hope that you're going to be there. Uh, They're going to be talking about the doctrine of God. Again, it'll be January 21st through the 23rd, McGregor Baptist Church there in Fort Myers, Florida. Jump on their website 
Check them out at founders.org forward slash 2021 conference. Again, great speakers, Vody Bakum, Tom Askell, Jared Longshore, Chad Vegas, James Dolezal, uh, myself, Daryl, we will be there. We can't wait to see you there. Uh, looking forward to an opportunity to connect again, January 21st through the 23rd, McGregor Baptist Church, Fort Myers, Florida. Check them out, founders.org forward slash 2021 conference. We'll see you there. Take care. God bless. The Just Thinking Podcast, hosted by Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker, is a Christ-centered, gospel-focused, and theologically challenging program that boldly and unapologetically addresses social, political, and cultural issues from a biblical worldview. With an international listenership that stretches from the United States and Canada to Romania, Nicaragua, and Mongolia, the Just Thinking Podcast breaks through all ethnic, geographic, social, and cultural barriers to bring the objective truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the issues confronting His church and His people. Subscribe to the Just Thinking Podcast using the podcast app on your Apple or Android smart device, or you can listen online at thebarpodcast.com slash JT.